The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right, we are live. Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. This is the content episode for the jail visit. I am absolutely exhausted. Oh, it's been a rough couple days. Uh, Prelim from hell. We all know about that. People are telling me how great I did. I'm pissed off for that. We'll save that for right now. You know. And uh, I just want to start. This is the content episode for the jail visit. We'll be covering six topics. How about Jen Kelly today, man? Jen Kelly kicking ass with the one chip challenge. For 300 bucks, our top associate, one of the best divorce lawyers in the state of Michigan, took on the one chip challenge. And in three bites, man, JK kicking ass. It's been a pretty good day professionally, but nothing was more impressive than seeing Jenny kill that chip and then swallow down the milk. I mean, tough chick, man. Jen Kelly, you are a tough girl. Glad to have you on our team. Okay, tonight our topics will be juvenile defendants. A discussion of the West Memphis Three. Whew. That one. That's a story in and of itself. Divorce. Criminal law spinoff. That's more of a Jen Kelly topic. That's appropriate for tonight. Jen killed it on the chip challenge. She's a badass divorce lawyer. We'll talk about that. Lineups. Do you have a right to a lawyer when you're asked to be in a lineup? The Collins call. Can somebody record you behind your back? And you'd be surprised the answer on that. And a discussion of Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. Was he a criminal or a savior? I um I put this Boogie Nights stuff in because somebody pissed me off. And they mocked me for talking about Boogie Nights. So what I'm going to do to that person you know you're a friend is I'm going to break down Boogie Nights over and over again. And uh, we'll take it from there. Then we got um, seven questions from the audience. Six were emailed and one came in in a text message. All right. Let's start with juvenile defendants. Okay. Juvenile defendant is somebody who is a minor. What we're supposed to do with juveniles is we're supposed to have a rehabilitation type of court as opposed to just a punishment type of court. We treat juveniles different in the criminal justice system than we treat adults. This is um, one of the reasons I'm such a big Nick Hathaway supporter because Nick Hathaway is an amazing juvenile referee at Lincoln Hall. He should have won the circuit court election. And he will be on the bench at Frank Murphy, thank God, at some point. And one of the reasons I admire Nick Hathaway so much, though he has always given me what I wanted, is because he looks at juveniles in a different light. Um, juveniles understand something. 
their mind is not where the adult mind is. We have to treat them with kid gloves. And in some ways, the juvenile court is like a really broad specialty court. We want to treat a 14-year-old accused of a CSC different than we want to treat a 44-year-old. The feeling is the juvenile has not developed mentally yet. We want to give them a second chance. And most importantly, I always say this with juvenile defendants. I want to take care of the juvenile today because I don't want them paying me 10 years from now. I don't want to see them come in in an orange jumpsuit and have to mortgage their family's home to bring me in the fight like hell against life in prison. Let's try to nip this thing in the bud. What we're seeing more and more with juvenile cases, though, is that a rogue cop can completely take advantage of a juvenile. I had a big juvenile case in a county, which we won't say the name, but it starts with a letter of the alphabet, which is near the end. <laughs> and um, in that particular county, the cop lied in the police report. The cop actually said in the police report that this kid would not come in. That wasn't true. Um, what happened there is the kid would not come in without a lawyer. Now, usually, I'm not a fan of bringing anybody into the police. And when I bring somebody in to talk to the police, th there's a reason for it. I've done it a few times in my career, and when I do that... Usually I know something's going to go to trial, and I want to tell the jury, we want to talk to the police, you know. But when you're going to talk to the police, understand something. The police, in my opinion, respectfully, are not looking for the truth in an interview. They're looking to gain ammunition for their prosecution. Most powerful tool a prosecutor can have in a prosecution is a confession. And a juvenile is more apt to give a confession than an adult would be. Though there are some pretty f***ing stupid adults. But the kid that's a juvie, he or she just feels like, hey, I have to tell the cop what they want to hear. And there's something called fixed false beliefs. This is a topic for another time that comes in the false confessions, but what a fixed false belief is, and you do this with hypothesis testing, and I won't bore you with those topics tonight, but a fixed false belief is if somebody keeps telling you you did something, you can be convinced temporarily that you did something, even if you're completely innocent. Sad situation. And the re-technique which is a technique used, a nine-step technique used to often get confessions out of people. A fixed false belief in the read technique when used incorrectly can have an innocent person make a confession. And this is really done heavily with juvenile defendants. And we see that all the time. The gist of things is this, depending upon what county you're in, juveniles should be treated differently doesn't always work that way but there's a feeling that the juvenile can actually be rehabilitated before we actually send them to incarceration now what they do with a juvie is depending upon if they want to try the individual as an adult they want to take away from their home and the feeling is that the parents failed
There's a few things to understand. Number one, did the juvie even commit the crime they're accused of? Number two, is there a motive with the alleged victim? Number three, if there was a confession, was it coerced? And number four, defense lawyers, lock in on this. Watch those police reports, man. Those police reports can be bullshit, especially in certain counties where the letter of the alphabet's towards the end. Um, in some of those police reports, what we see is basic bullshit. In this one particular county, you always got to ask, was there an interview? Always got to wonder, when an officer doesn't record and doesn't do a video, and you just take their word for it in writing, that shouldn't be enough. I remember one lawyer I used to work with, and he used to say, well, back in my day, that's all we had, so that's what we had to deal with. Okay, well, you know what? That's bullshit. We're going to put the cop on the honor code. There's actually a case law that says the cop can use mischaracterization to get a confession. So let's think of this. If a cop can lie to get to the truth. Jesus. I don't get it sometimes, guys. Some days this job. Remember, I had a juvenile case once. And this guy loved his golden retriever it was a 14 year old kid and his golden retriever was everything to him and obviously that hits me home I'm a big dog lover have golden retrievers and the piece of shit, the officer in charge said to this kid whose mother was there and crying and the poor mother she tells this kid just tell the officer the truth honey we can go home the cop says if you ever want to see your dog again, tell me what really happened. And in fact, son, I will write this out for you. You could just initial it. Fuck you, dude. Fuck you twice, you piece of fucking shit. When I got that case dismissed, I was really fucking happy. And I went up to that cop afterwards, and they threatened to press charges on me because I got in his face so much. You never use a fucking animal and threaten a child to get a confession because you're not good enough to be a fucking cop and do the work yourself. But I digress. Anyway, we see things like the raise the age plan. We're actually trying to move Haida from the end of 23 to the end of 25. Haida is the Home Useful Training Act. And what Haida does is it gives offenders a chance to keep things off the record. Juveniles actually treat it with more kid gloves than Haida. What we learned with the Raise the Age plan is that we're learning that the mind of a child, an adolescent, is not actually formed until later in life. So we want to treat young defendants differently than we want to treat full-grown adults. And let's remember something, guys. Pay careful attention to me. Somebody is innocent until proven guilty. I'll do go real slow. Innocent until proven guilty. By the way, that cop in Wayne, the one who didn't record anything, luckily for you, sir, I did record our conversation and got you to admit that you tried to set that kid up. In fact, the idiot actually said, yeah, I tried to set the kid up. So f***ing what? Well, let's just play this for the jury.
I'll have you know that that kid's really doing great today. No thanks to you. That's juveniles. Speaking of juveniles, the West Memphis Three. Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Damian Eccles. Three young men that were deemed white trash in West Memphis, Arkansas, accused of killing and mutilating three children. And when Gary Gitchell was asked about the case, he was one of the ones prosecuting. They asked him, what do you think from a 1 to 10 is your chance of winning this case? And he said an 11. And the world laughed in West Memphis, Arkansas. And then HBO got involved. And then the Paradise Lost documentary started coming out. And we learned that Jesse Miss Kelly was actually mentally challenged. There was like a 12-hour confession. And the police lost four hours of the confession. Oops. Damien Eccles was accused of being a rapist and killer because he listened to Metallica music and wore black. Guess I would have been f***ed there, huh? And Jason Baldwin, who was a minor at the time, actually was in school at the time of the murders, and there were school attendance records, and the piece of s*** judge in that case, I like judges, but this one was a piece of s***, would not allow that evidence in. And the funny thing is, when they were on appeal, and I'm, I'm not really versed in the Arkansas legal system, um, Arkansas legal system makes New Jersey feel like they're Mensa members from what I've studied. The same judge that was their version of a circuit court judge was also the appellate judge. Surprisingly, he didn't appeal himself. In that case, there was coerced confessions. There was a lot of bull that went on. In fact, there was one kid that traded information, and the prosecutor schooled him on what to say. You always got to watch when there's a trading of information. When somebody's got a motivation to save their own ass, because they want the bigger fish, how credible is that individual providing the information? The kid later recanted and said how he was sorry he did that. Well, I can't speak for Damian Eccles, who was raped over a hundred times in prison, but I don't know if your apology really carried a lot of weight. Um, eventually, the West Memphis Street took an Alfred plea. <sighs> Alfred. An Alfred plea is something we don't have in Michigan currently. But what an Alfred plea means is somebody will plead guilty, but maintain their innocence. And the trade-off is basically they're like on probation for life. And if they get like a parking ticket, they could end up doing time. I'm being a little facetious, but no, nah, not completely. But the Alfred plea is something that's used in certain states. And when you sign an Alfred plea, you waive your right to civil litigation. If we really want to shake some sh up, we need to see some prosecutors get sued when they bring bullshit cases. That case is something we'll talk about in more detail as we proceed. But we had false confessions. We had mental health issues. 
We had juveniles getting f***ed over. We had a lynch mob. And if it wasn't for HBO doing the Paradise Lost documentaries, those three young men would have spent life in prison and Damien Eccles would have been electrocuted. For those of you that have never heard of the West Memphis Three, check it out. Some great documentaries on HBO. And HBO really brought stuff to life. Um, there's also another documentary called West of Memphis. And I think I've read about 12 books on the topic. I could talk about the West Memphis Three all day. In fact, I covered the West Memphis Three when I was in law school. When I was writing for the uh, Pillar newspaper. And I thought to myself, um, well, it may be one of the reasons I want to get involved in criminal law was the West Memphis 3 case. There has never been such a travesty of justice that was brought to light. What really horrified me about the West Memphis 3 was if HBO doesn't get involved, what happens? I mean, the only reason there was some little bit of justice is because HBO got involved and uh, sad situation there but I am happy to say Damien Jason and Jesse are free men today justice was not really served I think like you got your appetizer the main course was taken away from these guys but the Alfred plea, the West Memphis Three, that's a topic we'll get into. Things like the West Memphis Three, Brendan Dassey, the Central Park Five, things like that really keep me up at night. Ryan Ferguson's case, thankfully Ryan's out. I always say this, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. A guilty person should not walk free. But an innocent person who's incarcerated, that, in my opinion, is a cardinal sin. And I know one particular officer in a county that is sort of in the middle of the alphabet. <laughs> Different county than the one towards the end. He always does his pitch when he tries to get a confession. Why well, rather see ten guilty people walk free than one innocent person go down? Then he writes a report giving his opinion. Remember on this one CSC case, he gave his opinion of why the guy was guilty. You know, when you read it... That case got dismissed, by the way. Um, but when you read his opinion, it was almost like, Jesus, did you... Number one, why are you giving an opinion? You're supposed to be reporting the facts. That's wrong. Number two... Where did you go to school? I, I'm not a big believer in the educational system, okay? I'm really not. Uh, but this guy, whoever trained him, I mean, he would have been better off like using Crayola. I think my dog Teddy would have wrote a better police report than that. I mean, at least Teddy would have tried to use spell check. Jesus Christ. Not a grammar Nazi, but come on, bro. We're talking about somebody's life. Can you spell their name correctly in the report? Anyway, officer... I know you kind of watch it sometimes. I know you you send me, like, um, friend requests from different women who I keep blocking. Uh, different women that want to... By the way, when somebody sends you a friend request you never met, 
and they say they're very interested in meeting you for sexual encounters. Do I need to even tell you to delete and block this stuff? I mean, what the fuck is wrong with these people? I mean, I know when people I know send that stuff, I start blocking it. But when people you don't know, mm, not a good look. Get the hell out of here. But yeah, I I know I have some friends in law enforcement, and I say friends facetiously that try to set me up on Facebook on a daily basis. Like, today's the day he's going to accept this friend request and join us. Government dollars at work, baby. All right. Topic three. The divorce. The Crim Law spinoff. Okay, Jen Kelly. Our one-chip challenge girl, the badass, she's the one you need to talk to about divorce. Um, this topic keeps coming in, and one of the problems with divorces, and this is why, I, um, well, I'll tell you the quick Jersey story. You guys, some of you have heard this before that follow me, some of you haven't. I was doing divorce work in Jersey for my first firm, and I was with this big-time firm that's no longer in existence, and they had set up like this little gym for me and all this other stuff. I used to work around the clock. Either on Friday night, 2 o'clock in the morning. One day, this guy comes in. And I'm thinking it's like the cleaning crew or something. And he's a doctor who's on the other end of the divorce case. And this was like a gated community. I don't know how he got in, who he paid off, whatever. But who had gotten to my head. And he almost killed me. I remember I told my way out of it. That's the short story. Um, long story is... Uh, Something I share with my mental health professional. <laughs> but with that being said, people go crazy in divorce, man. I will tell you, I have so many cases where people are facing life in prison, and they're usually more calm and relaxed than a divorce case. When people get divorced, there's a child custody battle. I mean, people feel like for some reason they're the failure. Relationships can end sometimes, guys. You shouldn't beat yourself up. But what you need in a divorce lawyer is somebody who, number one, is going to care about your situation. And number two, is going to fight like hell for you. Jen Kelly does both of those things. I come in on divorces sometimes that they need somebody to get a little crazy with things and just shake things up. You know, but I know how to do divorce. But I really, I mean, I focus everything I have on crim. I'll say 95% of my work is on crim. A lot of times with divorce cases, too, one of the problems I have, and it's a real crim little spinoff, and here's what I mean by this. I will do a crim case for somebody, and I'll get to know the family very well. You know, and in some ways, I become an extended member of their family. And what happens at that point is both parties say it's a husband and wife, they'll share things with me during the course of the criminal investigation. And I will listen. I'm the listening post. And I don't judge. You tell me anything, it's kept in the vault. I think a lot of people that know me know I almost went to jail for 30 days because um, a judge ordered to take my phone away. And I said, no, I won't give, I won't give you my phone. There's too many things on this bad boy. There's too many secret things on here that people have shared with me that I would rather go to jail than give up my phone. 
If you text me something, believe me, it is safe. And during the course of a criminal case, I will get text messages from people where a lot of times, you know, they'll be pouring their guts out. And it's my obligation to keep those things between myself and myself. It's nobody's business, right? Well, here's the problem. After the divorce, after the crim case is over, these people feel connected to you. But then they may want you to pick a side. Hey, I'm getting divorced. A and B are getting divorced. And A really wants you to be their divorce lawyer. Or B wants you to be their divorce lawyer. What will usually happen in that situation is I will give one party to Jen Kelly and we will farm the other one out to two very, so I want two very respectful lawyers that I'm screened off from it. I can't be involved in that situation because I've built a relationship with both parties. And my goal after a crim case is hopefully to keep people together. I'll say this about relationships though, and this really pisses me off. I will never impose my opinion on the parameters of a relationship. Because if you're not in a relationship, you really have no fucking right to provide your insight. You should listen and be a friend. If you're a lawyer, that's one thing. But when two friends break up, you shouldn't pick a side, really. You should try to be there for both of them. And that becomes a conflict situation. But unless you were in that relationship, you don't know that relationship. I see too many times when people start picking sides and going against other people. And a lot of times friends make that situation worse. If people are on the verge of divorce, they're going through a lot already. You want to be supportive. You want to pick them up emotionally. You want to be there for them. But... You should not really make the situation any worse because you don't know. If A tells you something or B tells you something, you're only getting A or B side of the story. You weren't there. People are pouring their hearts out. They want somebody to listen to them. They don't necessarily really want you to pick a side. That's my feeling on it. So whenever people I'm close with are getting divorced or people I represent it, I really want to give that case to somebody else. I don't want what I know to really, you know, impart or hurt the situation any further. It's a more delicate topic than CSC, in my opinion. It's just, it's a tough situation. And when there's children involved, it magnifies it. Remember one thing, guys, and I mean this to people out there that are on the verge of divorce or people that, are thinking about it. When you have a child with somebody, especially if the child's in those formative years, once you have a child with somebody, for better or worse, you're part of them forever. So to me, the most important decision anybody makes is when they have children. You gotta remember what toll a divorce can take on the child, especially if the child is like under the age of 16. Um, it's really, it's a tough thing for the kid. So when you guys are fighting over that 1958 Mickey Mantle baseball card, remember the child really needs support because a lot of times the child feels like they failed. And it's a tough situation for the kids. Keep that in mind. 
And what I hate about some lawyers is they forget about the children involved, or they use the child as a pawn to get leverage. You know, if you have two good lawyers, you can work stuff out and just present proposals to the court. When it becomes a war, nobody really wins in divorce, and certainly war is something I'm not shy of. Jen Kelly's awesome at it in divorce, but, you know, to me, part of the game of divorce is navigating the system in as painless as a scenario as possible. Because while I may hate the other person, if there's a child involved, yeah, you just gotta do what's in the best interest of the children all the time, in my opinion. Lineups. Topic four. At a lineup. A lineup is when the police put you usually with a group of five other people, to possibly pick you out of a lineup. All right, first, understand something. You have a right to a lawyer at a lineup. A lineup is what we call a critical stage. And a critical stage is any time you have a right to counsel when incarceration can happen. You should never go to a lineup without a lawyer present. In fact, you probably shouldn't go to a lineup at all, but if it's court-ordered that you have to, have the lawyer present. Because one of the things you want to look at the lineup is do you have six people with similar characteristics? Um, if I was accused of a crime and they put me in a lineup with five guys with long hair and man buns and it was a bald guy that committed the crime, I'm probably f***ed right now. That's not the way this works. We sold this a lot. Yeah, they still do do lineups, by the way. Um, you sold this a lot in the 60s when minorities were really getting screwed over in the criminal justice system. And it was a black defendant. And they would put, like, five white guys in a lineup with the black guy. That becomes a suggestive lineup. You gotta be really careful with that. It's a lot of motions that come into play. And when they put you in the six hole in the lineup, that's almost a cue. People usually will pick the five or six. Six is really special. Here's why. Here's the psychology of things. When somebody goes to a lineup, they don't like or they don't think it's the first few people. In their mind, they feel they got to pick somebody. So I'd rather pick number six than pick nobody at all. If you ever want to see a lineup be unfair, the first thing you really need to know is that they put you in the six hole. And Mike just said the stories I could tell you about lineups unbelievable. Mike would know. He's got experience in law enforcement. Lineups could be a horrifying situation. You do have a right to a lawyer in a lineup. I've written thesis papers on how lineups are supposed to be fair. And usually they use lineups today to answer kind of a question that came from the audience. Lineups are used. The last time I really had a lineup was a bank robbery case where somebody allegedly used a disguise. They were trying to figure out if this person could be picked in the lineup. That's how they're often used today in those type of cases. So when it's kind of a whodunit, lineups still have a role in things.
right? The Collins call in Michigan right now. If somebody wants to record you, we are a one-party consent state. What's that mean in English? I agree. I consent to recording you. Well, guess what? I can record you. And you would not believe some of the things I have recorded over the last few years. Um, I always tell people to really watch their back when they're on the call with somebody. I'm kind of under the impression that I'm always being recorded. I'm paranoid in that regard. When somebody I don't trust is on the other end of the phone, I almost have a script thinking, okay, they're trying to set me up. So I'm going to feed them some information. And I did this once um, on a situation where I knew it was going to be a Collins call. I recorded it. And the other person recorded it. The other person put a police report in with my client. And I'm going to tell you right now, the recording I had, first of all, it was reported in the police. And it was funny because the prosecutor, who's a very dirty prosecutor in this county that starts with a letter in the beginning of the alphabet. <laughs> um, in this case... They said they didn't actually have the recording, but this is a transcript of what they can remember. They lost it. Luckily, I had the recording. We could authenticate it. Two syllables. Sounds like dismiss. Man, scary shit. Some parties are two-party consent. You got to watch that. Like Florida. Two-party consent, which means if you record... It's actually illegal to record without getting both parties' consent. You could suppress it, maybe even bring civil litigation. By the way, here's another thing. I'm not really on the Collins Cole tip. But um, if you hack into someone's emails and use them, that's illegal. Watch your back on it. I see this happen all the time now where people will present um, emails that were sent to a third party well how'd you get those emails that becomes a question it's actually a misdemeanor for a first offense to steal someone's emails that could certainly be used in a case to discredit somebody so be careful reading other people's emails that's not a good look just be careful with that one guys and i say that because i see that happen so frequently it's almost like jaywalking which, as we know from another video, <laughs> don't jaywalk for a third time in Detroit. All right. Jack Horner from Boogie Nights. And here, I'm glad Nicole Lindsay's on. Nicole, was either you or one of your friends that was mocking me for the Boogie Nights situation last time? Um, so, whoever was mocking me on the Boogie Nights situation, I decide to run with the Boogie Nights situation more. Because Boogie Nights is a awesome movie and there are more cool legal issues in boogie nights than you can imagine and tonight we're going to talk a little bit about jack horner jack horner was played by burt reynolds he was kind of the ringleader in boogie nights he was the porn producer and 
you know, he was viewed as like the father figure of everyone. So the question is this, was Jack Horner a criminal? Or was he a savior? A lot of these kids that got into the porn industry were runaways. And I remember early in the scene, early in the movie, I should say, he meets Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams becomes Dirt Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg. And he sees, um, he sees Eddie in the back. And Eddie goes, do you want five or ten? And Jack said, what do you mean? He goes, well, if you just want to see it, meaning his penis, it's five. Do you want me to jump off it's ten? And Jack Corner goes, you've done this a couple times already tonight? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you could do it again. He goes, if you got ten bucks. Well, here's the thing. That's an aggravated indecent, number one. That's a two-year high court misdemeanor in Michigan. And it could be sore if you have any prior criminal history. I won't bore you with that tonight. Jack says, come on out and have a drink with us. Eddie tells him he's 17. Eventually, Eddie hangs out with them. They drink, do whatever. Jack brings Eddie back to his house. And Eddie and Roller Girl hook up. Roller Girl's under the age of 18 this time. And Jack basically watches them have sex. Has Jack committed a crime at this point? I mean, I guess accosting a minor for illegal purposes would be one thing. When he actually uses Eddie as his star in his movies, Eddie's under the age of 18, so is that child porn distribution? I could tell you in Michigan, if there's a minor who's got a naked picture and you forward it to one person, that's distribution. That's a 20-year felony. So here's the deal. We won't get too deep into this tonight. With Jack Horner, he gave a lot of people an opportunity to make money. They all lived in his house. I never saw Jack have sex with anybody. I'm assuming him and Amber were together. It's kind of alluded to. And in fact, when the colonel gets caught on a child porn ring, he kind of turns his back on the colonel, even though the colonel was his financer. So what was Jack Horner? Was he like a father figure? Was he a criminal? Was he a savior? If we're going by the black letter of the law, I'm sure there's a host of criminal charges we could bring against Jack Horner. And if it wasn't the late 70s and early 80s, I imagine Jack Horner would probably be on the sex registry and doing some time in prison. In this historical time frame, I, I don't know. I'll leave that to you. I like the movie, and I like Jack Corner, but when you break it down from a criminal law aspect, I'm really not sure um, he's a great guy. Entertaining movie. Okay, we're going to answer. We got seven questions. Seven? All right. <sighs> and Mike, you text me number seven, so I will answer your question last. Um, and guys, I know some people basically say um, they couldn't get to the email. So if you want to text me these questions, that's cool too. Mike did tonight. I'll always, I'll throw them on here. Number one, do athletes make good criminal lawyers? Yeah. Um, when you're an athlete from the time you're a kid, you feel some pressure. You know, pressure to play the game. 
And I do think when you're on kind of a stage from an early age, it helps. I think people that were either athletes or um, like theater majors, really, they play a role in things. Um, Chris Brown, great trial lawyer. You know, I know there were some rocky things there, but he had a theater background and he always felt he was on stage in trial. I know when I'm in a trial, I often, you know, I go back to my baseball days and I always like before a closing, there's usually a little break in the action. I will listen to Enter Sandman on like Spotify and come in and like I'm closing a game like a Mariana Rivera. I always feel if I'm close and I get a chance to close, I'm going to do it. So I do think the athletic aspect of things does help you. Question, how many times do you watch Boogie Nights? Too many times to count. If you locked me in a room with Boogie Nights, Friday Night Lights, and Rocky, I would basically just never leave that room. So, yeah. Um... There may have been times when I had the flu in the past when I just stayed in the room and watched those three movies. So I did not become an attorney because of Boogie Nights. I Emily Thomas, did you become an attorney because of Boogie Nights? No, I became an attorney because I couldn't make as a professional baseball player. And I figured the only way to get my family out of the ghetto was to argue. <laughs> Ta-da! Question two. What advice would you give a first-term law student? Okay, here's the deal. First-term law students, number one, especially go to Cooley, everything they're telling you. That intro to law bullshit and that buttery and all that crap, they're not, that's not going to help you do well in your finals. Doing those bullshit briefs is not going to help you do well in the finals. Read the case. Do a brief in the book, download the brief online in case you got the bullshit Socratic method. What you want to spend your time doing is doing multiple choice and writing essays. Multiple choice and essays, multiple choice and essays. The first thing your professor sees is your multiple choice score. That's your black letter law. They got an impression right there. It's like that first impression, meeting someone, finding if they're attractive or not. Understand that. If you write beautiful essays but cannot do MCs, you will not do well in law school. If you could do great at MCs and are a half-ass essay writer, you'd probably do fine. You need to master multiple choice. I know, there's like professors like Brandon Beery, who, guy in Tampa, he runs his mouth about legal issues all the time, blah, blah, blah. I never saw a more bizarre professor. He teaches it in such... A moronic manner, con law and crim law. It's like what a law school professor is supposed to be doing is teaching you how to pass the bar exam. It's like the JV coach teaching you a different system than the varsity coach. Some amazing professors like a Mark Dotson, James Peden, people like that actually train you to law. Then there's people like Norman Fell that just make it up as they go along. Reality is this. What do you got a Beery, Fell, Dotson, Peden, whatever. Um, what I would say is this, guys. Nail those multiple choice. Get your hands on all the multiple choice you can. If you need extra multiple choice, I will send to you free of charge. I used to write multiple choice in my free time when I was tutoring. MCs is your success. If you're a Cooley, 
download every essay your professor has on the portal start reading like you're reading a magazine article get the issue spotting going if you nail your mcs and you do well on the s issue spotting you will kick ass in law school the question from the audience should prospective law students major in english or philosophy also would you suggest an out-of-state online school or traditional law school um number one I would say philosophy doesn't really help too much. I think English does. Um, I think majoring in English when you're doing literature, it makes you a better legal writer. But I will say I think one of the best things to major in, which I didn't know at the time, is psychology. Um, psychology may not help you get through your law school courses, but it sure as hell will help you become a better lawyer. A lot of psychological issues here. And would I suggest an out-of-state online school or traditional law school? I'm still a believer in a traditional law school. You know, I think you get more in the traditional law school than people would realize. And I don't think the online, there's a lot of things that can be accomplished online, but I don't think the online law school is going to give you the tools you're going to want to pass the bar exam as much as the traditional school. All right, question three. What's the best way to prepare for the LSAT? Okay, the LSAT is a completely bullshit, bullshit test. Um, and in my opinion, every prep course out there, Kaplan, Barbary, whatever, I mean, they're all fine. They'll tell you the same thing, though. You gotta practice those old tests. The logic games, reading comprehension. They're going to ask you the same questions and just change the form. So the way to do well on the LSAT is to just practice those old tests over and over and over again. You know, I don't think any of those LSAT programs are bad, but I don't know how helpful they are. I really don't. I think the key to success on the LSAT is multiple choice. And I think if you do enough multiple choice by practicing the old test, that will help. Um, Pat Carmody says Terry Wayne Hogg was the killer in the West Memphis 3 case. I tend to agree with you. I think we'll probably get a deathbed confession from Hobbs. But, yeah. I don't disagree with that. I know he sued the lead singer of Dixie Chicks for the comment she made. But, um, yeah. Question four. What course in law school may helps you the most in the real world? Okay, this is an easy one. Evidence. I think one of the few courses in law school that are applicable in the real world is evidence, especially in Michigan, because the federal rules of evidence and the Michigan rules of evidence mirror each other a great deal. Um, Impeachment, character, and hearsay are your three huge topics. Relevancy plays a role in everything. And the dynamic between MRE, Michigan Rules of Evidence 401, versus Michigan Rules of Evidence 403, which is trying to keep evidence out. 403 asks, is the probative value substantially outweighed by the prejudicial effect? You know, we're really looking at relevance and... 401 relevance brings you in, 403 kicks you out, and while all the rules are important, those two things play off each other throughout the entire course. 
And I do think if you have a good evidence professor, it could really give you a leg up on not only the bar exam, but also um, real world application. You know, with evidence, understand it's one of your seven topics on the MBE, which is your multiple choice portion of the bar exam. And there will always be an essay on the Michigan bar as well. So evidence plays a role in one of your essays in your multiple choice and in real world practice evidence in my opinion is your most important course in law school question five can you explain where the crady l case stands what i can say is we will certainly be ready for trial if it gets that far that's as much as I'm going to say on this topic for now. Question six. I have an abuse and neglect case. What advice would you provide? Okay. Are you represented by counsel? What county are you in? That's the first question. If you're represented by counsel, certainly you should talk to your lawyer. Uh, with that being said, with abuse and neglect cases, the danger is do you have a criminal law case attached to it? Gotta remember one thing, if you do, you really should get that stayed. Because anything you say in the abuse and neglect case can be used against you as former testimony in your criminal case as a hearsay exclusion. So your freedom should come before the abuse and neglect case. And a lot of counties, they'll try to push that to trial, the abuse and neglect case, before a criminal matter. When they do so, they're really setting you up for failure. So the criminal case should take priority. And a lot of times, a lot of counties, these two things run hand in hand. I see a lot of prosecuting officers bring an abuse and neglect case before the criminal case has been authorized in an attempt to try to get admissions from people. So watch your back on that. So the first piece of advice I would give you is talk to your lawyer. The second piece would be it's got to be county specific. Of course, an abuse and neglect case in Washington is not the same as Macomb or Lapeer. They are different animals um, in every county. They're very specific. Usually have the same prosecutors working on them in the county. And be careful not to push to a trial in that case before your crim case. Crim's got to take priority. Don't forget that. Uh, and number seven, this was Mike. Mike sent me this text. And um, what's your opinion about schools canceling Halloween and Valentine's parties because a child can be offended? What the hell? What are, where are we at right now? Oh, God. Well, I think somebody best said that um, I'm too conservative for Washington and too liberal for Shiawassee. Why are we canceling these events? Because a child could be offended. I could tell you about St. James and where I grew up. And I... I had an interesting childhood, okay? I will tell you, my aunt and my mom... Um, I can tell you, my aunt and my mom meant the world to me. Still mean the world to me. May they both rest in peace. But uh, we grew up poor. And I hated St. James, man. My God. Catholic school I went to, what a bunch of ass running the show there. 
what I can say is this, though. Some of the happiest times I had were at Halloween and Valentine's Day parties that helped socialization. When I hear children could be left out or hurt, children could also have a great experience. What are we doing with this whole political correctness thing? I understand that we need to be PC on some things, but to start shutting down events because a child got their feelings hurt, you know, it's... And I gotta tell you, I have a real problem. I see the participation ribbons coming in. I have a real problem with just giving a kid a trophy for showing up. You know, I was an athlete, okay? And this is just me. If my team didn't win, I didn't want a f***ing trophy. I want to earn that sh-. And I did win some trophies throughout the years. And there was many years I didn't. <clears throat> and I never wanted something I didn't earn. I feel like we're almost taking competition out of things now. You should not be rewarded just for showing up. I'm sorry. And we should not be turning down, stopping events just because somebody could have their feelings hurt. Well, that's going to piss people off, so be it. I'm not going to hide my opinion on these things. To shut down Halloween and Valentine's events, in my opinion, is going to hurt more children by just taking away that opportunity. Um, I'm sorry that people feel some children could be hurt, but to just take these opportunities away from children in general doesn't make sense to me. I just think that's bullshit. So, that's it. Okay. We are done for tonight. Bill Amadeo, I approve this. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.